0: Hello, this is Jesse Weiler for Autoramus Bulletin. In this episode, I speak with Dr. David Fagerberg, who is Professor Emeritus of Liturgical Theology at the University of Notre Dame. He recently wrote an article for Autoramus titled, The Many Altars of God, a Primer in Understanding Liturgy and Deification. This was an amazing interview with somebody who is a recently retired academic, and he just shares all of his insight after decades of teaching about what he thinks we should be thinking about in terms of liturgy. So without further ado, another Autoramus interview. Hello, Dr. Fagerberg. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm glad to be here. I'm doing well. I am. I'm glad that you're here as well. And I'm glad that um, you denied Chris's first attempt at an article and then revised the premise and then ended up writing something else. So thank you from so much for, uh, for your efforts here.
1: That's uh, only the sort of thing you can do when you're retired and curmudgeon. and.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I do think it's an important premise and I think, uh, you know, our conversation today will, will depict all of these common questions. There's a lot of different ways that you can think about liturgy. You can think about the, you know, liturgical theology. You can think about the practicals and rubrics and things like that. Um, but, you know, you spend so much time, teaching all of this and you've had so much time to reflect on all of this my, my first question is you know you talk about these four altars the wood altar the stone altar the spiritual altar and the celestial altar why why did you start there what 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 purpose do those have in your mind in terms of conveying you know this uh you know decades of knowledge and teaching mm-hmm.
1: i think that uh, if i take something away from my decades it's that i've wanted uh, liturgy to be treated in a larger context or larger sense or discover something uh, deeper in liturgy than is often discovered when people treat liturgy uh, simply as an instance of ritual studies. Uh, You have a ritual to brush your teeth in the morning. Oh, and liturgy is a ritual. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, A ritual without theology is not a, a liturgy make. Uh, Likewise, um, just phenomenology or rubrics, um, I think that for it to be theology, one has to discover a way to find God active in it. Theologos is uh, watching the activity of God. Otherwise, it could be done by uh, religious studies or by anthropology or phenomenology or history. So uh, how would I insert the jaws of life to dilate the uh, concept of liturgy? The thing I've been doing um, lately is to think in terms of uh, liturgical mysticism or spiritual liturgy, and that was the topic of the book uh, on liturgical mysticism. It's as if the liturgy begins at the throne of God in heaven, uh, hat tip to Jean Corbon, who uh, speaks this way in his Wellspring of Worship. And it flows from God to... Um, the world to his church. And then I picture it uh, pooling up in the baptismal font, but overflowing the lip and uh, into our hearts. And so I've been trying to get from a heavenly liturgy to the sacramental liturgy, including Christ's activity on the cross, but getting it into our hearts. And that's how these four uh, altars uh, popped into my mind. If, um, Liturgical studies asks, uh, what happens in liturgy? Liturgical mysticism asks, what happens to us in liturgy? So I've been thinking about the um, liturgical activity in the heart. So then it made sense to uh, connect Christ to his church, Christ and his church to the individual heart, the individual person to his eschatological future. I had a little joke in the footnote there that uh, while I was working on these four, of course uh, one has to be aware that uh, Adam and Eve were created as cosmic priests, and the fall was a forfeiture of their liturgical career. So there should be some cosmic altar, some cosmic liturgy going on. Say, so, yeah, and while we're at it, uh, topology uh, finds that Old Testament. Priests, kings, altars, prophets are uh, summarized and uh, uh, fulfilled in Christ. And so there's a typological altar of Israel. And even after I uh, remembered to put that in the footnote, I uh, found a passage, uh, again, from a different article I'd written, uh, quoting John Chrysostom, who talks about an altar of the poor. There's an altar of almsgiving. He writes, uh, do not protest. The stone altar is august because the victim that rests on it. But the altar of almsgiving is more so because it is made of this very victim. You honor this altar, the stone one in the church, because it receives the body of Christ. But the other, which is the body of Christ, you treat with ignominy and you look on indifferently while it perishes. And then he ends by uh, suggesting how... um, generous God is this altar you can see everywhere in the streets and the marketplace. And at any hour you could offer sacrifice there on. So, all right, now I've got seven chapters in my uh, future book where to ever come. Uh, what other altars are there? How has it been spoken about? I don't know. These four popped to my mind, but I'm sure it's been treated uh, by others.
0: Well, it hasn't been lost on me that the two of these are visible in the physical world. Right there's, you know the 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 wood cross and the stone altar, right? we We can look, see, you know, touch these things. We can feel them. You know, there's an actuality to them. Yeah. Uh, and then we have these two that are beyond our physical perception. Can you talk to me about those transitive properties? I mean, of course, they're all the same altar, right? Kind of in the yep. trinitarian sense. But can you talk about that—the the transference between you know the physical, earthly matter in into that uh, you know heavenly reality that that goes beyond our senses sometimes. Just
1: thinking of the uh, commonality of the phrase "under the veil," under the veil of the sacrament, under the veil of. Um, Bread and wine is the true body and blood. Uh, In a sense, uh, you can see the spiritual altar walking around. You could bump into them and knock them down on the street. Uh, But there's an internal external. And that's a popular uh, subject for research consideration in liturgy. Maybe taking this into that conversation about external external Participation and internal participation would be uh, beneficial to us. It does seem to uh, be asserting that um, what's done sacramentally exterior symbol body needs to be embraced, uh, ingested, swallowed, internalized, and uh, spiritualized. And I don't want to use spiritual to mean incorporeal. Uh, and yet, it's easy to slip in uh, that direction.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, that's what I was thinking. And then you started to mention all of these all other altars, and you know, the the corporeal uh, sense in me is trying to figure out, you know, the physical and and uh, transcending properties of all of those. And and you know, one could spend eternity thinking about all of that.
1: That's uh yeah. yeah. What, some, some ha- what better way to spend eternity when you get there?
0: Uh, that's absolutely. And- that's absolutely true. You you talked about this, you know, this uh, river, this flowing, right? That that pools into the baptismal font, but then later in the article you talk about that 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 then flows upward again,
1: right? All right.
0: So so can you you know parse that out for me a little bit?
1: Uh, sacrament and sacrifice, the uh, swoosh, um, incarnation and ascension. Uh, while I had classes rooms of students in front of me, I used to uh, try to tease them to uh, pay attention to this difficult, deific, deifying uh, quality of things by uh, reminding them not to overlook the Ascension. And so uh, uh, recommend to them that on Ascension Day they put up Ascension trees and send Ascension cards and give Ascension gifts to one another. The uh, God become man is the mirror image of the conclusion, which is uh, humanity being raised into the presence of God, being uh, made uh, divine, being deified. So the uh, down and up, um, incarnation and prokope, ascension, anaphora. Uh, I didn't have anything to do with the selection of essays in the uh, Adoramus bulletin, but I was happy to read uh, Cooper's essay. Uh, I'm sure that Chris was uh, behind this, and uh, he speaks about that anaphora lifting up uh, quality in uh, Maximus. Uh, So the uh, two articles uh, fit together nicely there. Um, Ratzinger in uh, Spirit of the Liturgy has a, a comment about transubstantiation that's always stuck with me that it is uh connected as much to the eschatological as it is to the historical and that transubstantiation is grasping something at the root of its being and and giving it over to the um, activity of god and so a new heaven a new earth a new humanity a new liturgy a drew new jerusalem Uh, that's where everything is going. And transubstantiation is a foretaste of uh, where it's going. Uh, So again, uh, the return upward to use uh, physical images of down and up, uh, makes uh, good sense. It it reminds us to uh, uh, set our eyes on heaven. I guess you have to do uh, liturgy on tiptoe.
0: This then leads me to this paradox that I just kept thinking about in my head, right? So this, this, Uh, flowing is going to happen whether I'm a part of it or not, because, you know, God is infinite and good and true and beautiful and all of that. But I am designed to partake yet. I do not affect my, my presence and enter into this does not affect that which is happening yet. I am designed to be a part of it. Can you uh, explain that a little more?
1: You might be touching on what was, um, fascinating me with uh, Edith Stein's work. I hadn't read that before and for another occasion uh, worked on it and um, uh, found these sorts of connections. So then uh, that whole John of the Cross business found resonance in the people that I've been reading lately. And uh, one of them was uh, St. Juer. And his quote read, In the hypostatic union of the incarnation, Divinity linked with humanity, and that constitutes Jesus. Well, the union of the divinity and humanity with the Christian makes the Christian, in some manner, Jesus Christ, and that's the deification language. Uh, I find this flowing into my brain through a numerous Eastern Orthodox authors, but now I'm finding it in all sorts of Western authors as well. Uh, one of the first that um, Reminded me that was uh, all the work in Columba Marmion. The, uh, what is a Christian? An alter Christus, another Christ. So the liturgy is Christ's, but he uses us in making this liturgy. So we do um, fully, actively, personally, spiritually participate. I'm going to expand full active and conscious participation, uh, spiritual, sacramental uh, eschatological, uh, personal, myself, humanly, uh, that there's a there's a the union between the head and the body makes the body's liturgy, the head at work in the body. So I don't think we're going to get a good grasp of liturgy without uh, having this mystical body language. Uh, there, the uh, book that uh, unlocked for me was um, Emil Mirsch's book, The Whole Christ. Uh, I'd never heard of it all through my schooling, and then uh, some footnote led me to it, and I was going to uh, write back and ask for a tuition refund because nobody had made me read that up to this point. Uh, that deification stuff makes great sense to me, and I look at it from my um, home in liturgical theology.
0: So this this all kind of sets up you know, where I want to kind of Wrap things up here. But the other thing that comes to mind is balance in all of this. Because, again, you know, I cannot affect something that is going to be good, true, and perfect in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Yet I am, I'm designed to be a part of it. So, how do I balance the, that in my own practice at mass? How do I balance that out internally?
1: I think it requires some preparation before you arrive at Mass. And that was the thesis of uh, on liturgical asceticism, the ascetical discipline with God, theologia. Um, the calls it the third stage. And so I thought of asceticism as capacitating us to commit liturgy. Uh, Taft has a line that stuck with me ever since I read it, that liturgy is a ritual which performs in a ritual way what should be the basic posture of every moment of your life. Uh, I'll do a ritual celebration of a wedding anniversary, but that doesn't mean I only love Elizabeth one out of 365 days. What should be my posture every day of the year receives uh, an external, extrinsic, expressed um, ritual manifestation? Well, what should be a liturgical posture all week long receives an expression uh, upon arrival at the church, and it requires an ecclesia, requires sacramental feeding, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, how do I... Do that in my fifty-five minutes. That's my sarcastic way of saying not paying enough attention to mass. I could be fitted in fifty-two minutes, but why would you want to? Um, what I do in that in that uh, ordered rubrical time ought to be an expression of what uh, has what one has been struggling with uh, through the entire week. And there for me is, again, is a connection between the stone altar and the uh, flesh altar of the heart.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and to kind of bring this to a head here is, you know, we've been talking about and trying to understand the liturgy that is perfect or perfected. And yet we can't have a perfect liturgy because we're not yet perfected. So there's that paradox again. So what is a what is a perfect liturgy from the, our vantage point? I guess
1: it would have to be done by perfect liturgists, right? You set up mm-hmm. the question uh, nicely. And that means it is uh, done only by Christ. He's the true adorer. He's the only one who makes true adoration. Because in his hypostatic union, he's able to... Uh, turn the face of humanity to God that ought to be turned to God. He's the one who can do it. Oh, but the spiritual tradition speaks at length about a uh, perfection of the Christian, which is always uh, placed at the uh, foot of charity. Growth in charity is growth in the perfection of the Christian. Well, hmm, that seems like liturgy and spirituality and social uh, charity and justice, and those would all be connected. Uh, if I could slip in, uh, I, you have a clock and I don't, but if I could slip in a um, quote here at the close, I um, read recently the the book by uh, the Benedictine abbess, uh, Cecile Bruyere, uh, Kevin Mag- Magnus uh recommended it to me and a lovely piece. Uh, She, your your listeners may know, was a cooperator with uh, Gouranger. They uh, would check with her about the things by Gouranger being published. And uh, when I read her book on the spiritual mystical life, I wonder to myself, is this what the liturgical Renaissance was actually fussing with? Was this... Uh, at the heart of what Gournage was up to as well. Oh, So I've got another set of books to read. Good thing I'm retired. Uh, Bruyere has this line. The uh, state to which our divine Lord reduces himself in the Eucharist in order to satisfy the requirements of his tender love brings him before us exactly in that form of holiness which our own spiritual life should assume. According to his own teaching, abnegation and perfect mortification are indispensable if we would learn to live by the Spirit. Our Lord's Eucharistic life is one of total abnegation, silence, poverty, obedience, isolation, tranquil self-surrender. And this is the ideal of what the soul's life will be when it has become perfectly united with God. Provided we wholly and uh, entirely surrender ourselves to him, he will fashion us according to his sacramental life and will form us to the highest holiness we can attain while we yet live in the land of faith. That would be growth towards perfect liturgy. It would require perfecting the liturgists. And that means uh, liturgy has an impact on uh, every hour. There's nothing so trivial that it's not connected to being transformed into a liturgical, sacrificial, oblation gesture to God.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, you know, we started this conversation talking about the altars and some of them being physical, you know, things that we could see and touch and control and, and look at, and, you know, and then transcending into the mystical. And if we're trying to make the perfect liturgy, we try to do those things in the physical realm that are observable that we can see control and do when actuality we need to receive this spirit spiritually so that we can partake and, and actualize the things that are physical, you know, it's this big loop. And I think that's becoming more clear to me now.
1: Yeah. And that um, spark that connects us with Christ is baptism. It, it, I think perhaps we need to all uh, return to a theology of the sacrament of baptism.
0: It's well, gate- you, were ta- you were talking about Ascension Trees, but maybe baptism yeah. birthdays, you know? <laughs>
1: well, it's, the, uh, it's the gateway to all future liturgy. You can't, mm-hmm. unless you've been baptized. Why? Because Christ has to be in you in order for you to uh, join him in this liturgy.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, as I expected, I am now left with more to think about than I did after I read your article. So I greatly appreciate your time here. And uh, we, we look forward to you getting some more rest and then, you know, writing a, a a article for Outer Amos every two months from here on out. I think this is what we're expecting, right? Thanks. God bless. Thank you.